Yeah, so the dong is the same dong as the as the dong chi, which is in the center of the chest. And it sometimes gets translated as gathering chi because it's in the center of the chest. And sometimes it's called ancestral chi, which is actually what the character means, because it's like the place where you put your sacrifices on the sacrificial, on the ancestral altar. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. We can't escape salvation. I'm not talking about that idea of an eternal reward for good behavior, or that if we live our lives correctly, and well, even if we don't for that matter, that we're somehow on the arc of redemption over time. What I mean by we can't escape salvation is that Given our being steeped in Western Judeo-Christian culture, even if you don't believe it, stories and admonitions, there is no way to avoid having some portion of your thinking not being tuned into the idea of salvation. That there is going to be a cosmic payday, that in the end, if you live a correct and upright life, it will somehow all be made right. There's a story that you've likely heard that before you die, your entire life flashes in front of your eyes, and then you get it. There it is, salvation. And it's true that before you die, your life does flash before your eyes. In the instant of eternity, it's called your life. It could take a few decades or more. Don't think you have salvational thinking running as part of the ghost in the machine? Just look behind any thought of If I do this, then I'll get that. Examine any virtue that you hold dear and see if behind it is the hope that your correct actions are going to fix the world. That's salvational thinking, and good luck with escaping it. In fact, as a Westerner, you probably don't want to. But our Chinese medicine, it's not salvational. It's not looking to fix. It's looking to follow and facilitate. With Chinese medicine, we are looking at an ever-unfolding flow that marries cause and effect into a greater unity. It's more like the unending ripples of waves on the surface of the ocean. We have the tools and perspectives to see where things are on their way to somewhere else. We work with trajectories within the realm of the possible. It's only heroic in that we bring our Western salvational mind and ego to the enterprise. Balance is not without movement. We talk a lot in our trade about bringing balance and harmony, and I, for one, used to conflate that with there being a sort of quietude or that all parts of the equation would equal zero. I used to think that balance meant stillness, that there was a kind of agreement amongst all the parts involved. We know this from our medicine. Lack of motion leads to dysfunction. Appropriate motion engenders life. When yin and yang are equal and not interacting, mm, that's game over. Here on the turbid and entangled earthly realm, we are looking at a constant interaction of yin and yang. Life here is anything but equal. But just like the crank of a bicycle with its opposing pedals drives you forward, so too the dynamic interplay of yin and yang unfold in our lives. But any harmony that comes from this is not because of a steady-state equality, but rather from the dynamic and ever-unfolding interchange of complements into their opposite. 
the salvational stories of the West, that there is a heavenly reward where there is an unchanging goodness for the righteous, that is a tempting story. But that is not how Chinese medicine works. We are not here to repair the universe, but more to attend to it as it unfolds. In our clinical work, we accompany our patients in discovering what curious, wobbly unfolding of yin and yang will help them along on their journey through this world. A long while ago now, I heard someone say that if you really want to understand something, then teach it to someone else. It will help you to clarify your gaps in understanding, help to simplify confusing complexity, and along the way, you'll discover where you've been skipping over important steps. Deborah Wolf has spent the last year teaching a course on Chinese language through the Apricot Grove, and I was curious to know what she's learned from the experience of taking others on a tour of key characters and concepts that even if you don't know Chinese, it would be helpful in your understanding of medicine to investigate. We'll be getting into that in a moment. Stay with us. These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on Diet as Medicine And the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lyle, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit Meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April 
with pride, knowing that you are helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. You can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up an available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. Welcome to Shop Talk. In this portion of the podcast, we are bringing you roughly 15 minutes of practical clinical methods, perspectives, and advice that has its work boots on. This section is all about practical material that you can begin to investigate the next time that you walk into clinic. Additionally, visit the show notes page for supporting materials from this week's guest on Shop Talk. All right, roll up your sleeves. Let's get to work. Today's shop talk is for students who have graduation on the horizon and new practitioners who are looking to build their practice. This might sound like advice from a grumpy uncle, but my practice has taught me a few difficult lessons, so I share this with the intent of smoothing your path. I'm not a business consultant, but I just passed 25 years of practice, which, believe you me, it's a surprise when I think about it. Again, I'm making no claims on being an expert, but I've learned a few things about how to rely on a private practice for my livelihood, and I'm deeply grateful to have been able to spend my days doing the work that I do and appreciative to, usually in retrospect, for the troubles along the way who are tough teachers. But the lessons offered and the capacity acquired, it's been worth the tuition. This shop talk is a reflection on experiences, pivotal moments, and reliable stepping stones that perhaps will be helpful to you as you set off on a boat you're not quite sure how to sail yet. There's a phrase that I suspect we've all heard at the beginning of any endeavor that we don't know how to do. The advice is, fake it till you make it. I can't think of anything that would be more ill-advised. Fake it till you make it suggests that you trade on lies to yourself and to others in service of some distant goal of developing a higher level of skill and capacity. The problem with faking it till you make it is that you build a business, life, and practice based on falsehood and lies. There is no faking it. There is only the attentive cultivation of your skills business acumen, understanding, empathy, and know-how. It takes grit. It takes honesty and perseverance and a lot of picking yourself up and dusting yourself off. 
It's not easy and it's not meant to be. You can't fake it till you make it. You have to work it and work it long enough that you get somewhere. It might even look as you imagined it, but usually not. What it will look like is an authentic reflection of you, your values, your vision, and heart. It's hard in the beginning. I'm not sure who said, what's more damaging, success or failure? It seems it's something I've heard before, and I want to attribute it to Zhuangzi, but I can't find the reference. But regardless of who said it, I think it's worth considering. What's more dangerous, succeeding in your lies or failing in your honest attempt? What's more, even if you do have early success in your earlier attempts, it's like beginner's luck. You might be missing important fundamentals or think you have an understanding that then interferes with the process of ongoing inquiry. I'm not glorifying failure or suggesting that you should aim at it, just that it's a part of the mix when you put skin in the game. A pal of mine likes to say that the possibility of failure is what keeps us sharp and rooted in the realities of any situation. If you're attempting something that does not include the possibility of failure, then you're not aiming high enough. The possibility of failure, it's like having a trusted advisor who will not lie to you. That said, don't take foolish risks. Try not to spend more than you're earning. If you have negative opinions about money or turning a profit with your practice, get that stuff worked out. I don't know anyone who doesn't carry some kind of baggage around money. As a patient of mine likes to point out, there's a big difference between being in poverty and being broke. Being broke is a temporary financial condition, but being in poverty, mm, that's a mindset, and it will keep you mired in financial troubles. It is possible to be generous with others and make a darn good living for yourself. Prosperity is not a zero-sum game. You're making money does not take away from others if your exchanges are actually based on value. It's like pie. For sure, if there's just one pie, then one person getting more means another person gets less. But we live in a world where you can make the pie bigger or make another pie for that matter. And that is part of the joy of having your own business. You get to make pie. Creating value, it never goes out of style. It's always in demand. Value can't be faked, at least not for long. It's really worth setting your sights on. The great thing about the world we live in is when you create something of value, the pie gets bigger. More pie for everyone? That's worth aiming at. In your ongoing clinical work, tread cautiously around belief systems. You can't reason people out of something that they were never reasoned into in the first place. Other people's beliefs might be offensive to you. They might inflame your reactivity, fears, hatred, or despair. You might even want to slap a mental illness diagnosis on them. I've done all the above. And it never helped me with the one thing that I should have been aiming at, understanding my patients, not agreeing with them, 
not thinking that they were wrong, or, well, possibly right for that matter, not calling up my internal tribunal of judgment, but rather understanding them from their own point of view, which I think is the way that we develop empathy. It is not easy. For me, it's been an ongoing lesson in learning to see what they see that I don't see, to understand what they fear that I don't fear, and to know what they want that I have no interest in. Empathy is not simply being in sympathy with what someone is feeling. It's understanding the meaning people attach to their thoughts that generate particular feelings. I fail at this on a regular basis, and yet I find it worth chipping away at because understanding my patients allows me to help them better. If you're holding on to adolescent issues with authority, it's helpful to get those resolved if you can, or at least be aware of your biases. Like it or not, practicing medicine puts you in a position of authority, so you need to learn how to use that wisely. Likewise, just because you've got fancy initials after your name, that doesn't confer authority. You have to have the chops and the skills, the capacity and the ability to be helpful to others. Genuine authority, I suspect, will naturally arise from what you learn when you're not faking it to make it. It comes from learning your craft with a clear eye to your limits and your capabilities. One more thing. Complaining, it never helps. Complaining, sarcasm, and recitation of the litany of unfairness and bad luck, no one really likes to listen to that. There really is only one person listening attentively to that stream of negativity. It's you, which I found locked me into limitations that it turns out I'd argued myself into. For sure, often enough, things don't go our way. However, complaining about it is like being struck by an arrow, but then you're adding some poison to it. As far as I can tell, running a business, it is a powerful form of self-cultivation. It will make you more resilient. You'll feel good about being capable of supporting yourself and your family. You'll be a more steadfast influence in your patients' lives, and you'll contribute more to the communities in which you live. Having a business, it's a privilege worth making the most of, and it's also a deep wellspring of creativity. Business, it's not something that we have to do. It's something that we get to do. As to the trade itself, you already know it's an ongoing, lifelong process. Just when you've caught a stride with your work and you think you really understand something, you'll get a patient who utterly confounds you. You'll know that you're making progress when this fires up your interest and curiosity instead of throwing fuel on your self-doubt and fear of being inadequate. I encourage you to dig deeply into whatever aspect of the medicine truly fires your curiosity. It never hurts to learn more about something that you're interested in. And be prepared for it to take you longer than you think it will. And be willing for it to change you in the ways that it does. Because it will. 
plenty of people will offer you a template for business success. And sure enough, there are fundamentals that underlie any successful business. Relying on the fundamentals of business, like leaning on the fundamentals of medicine and clinic, is like having a reliable compass that points to true north. For sure, learn those fundamentals. I suspect that business and clinical success does not come from someone else's blueprint or master plan, but rather it's a discovery of your own source code. The goal is to aim yourself with reliable tools in the direction of the practice that's uniquely yours. Is it possible to be a doctor and a business person? Perhaps doctors of old were better at medicine because they could write beautiful calligraphic poetry. I don't know. I think they were effective doctors because their practice of medicine was infused with a larger understanding and capacity to connect with the influences of heaven, cycles of nature, and the world of humans all in the middle of it. One thing for sure, I have found that engaging business as a kind of cultivation, it's helped me to be a more well-rounded practitioner. Later this fall, I'll be doing an eight-week mentorship program on businesses cultivation. To get on the list for this opportunity, send an email to together at geological.com. Setting off on the path of practice, it's a worthy endeavor and it gives you the opportunity to be of service to so many that you're going to meet along the way. Deborah Wolf, welcome back to Geological. Thank you, Michael. It's a total pleasure to be here again. Always fun to have you here. You've been on a number of times. We've talked about time, you know, little things like time, space, human in the endeavor of time and space, little things like that. Yeah. And, you know, I'm pretty sure that, well, if you'll have me, I may come back again and talk about time and space because I've, you know, I'm, I'm still there. I'm still doing all those crazy things. And in fact, my universe is broadening as we speak. Well, I would hope so. It's an expanding universe. The Big Bang hasn't stopped. Exactly. You know, we hear about the Big Bang, like, oh, the Big Bang happened. And it's like, well, actually, the Big Bang is continually going on. Yes. But then they talk about the breadth of the universe, you know, expansion and contraction. Do you think, you know, contraction is only going to happen in a few million years, maybe? Oh, I got no idea. And, you know, for all I know, we could be in in a contraction, But it looks like an expansion because, you know, from the point of view of where you are, there you are. So, I mean, I don't know. I'm not a physicist. No, me neither. Just a mere Chinese medicine practitioner. A mere Chinese medicine practitioner. You know, it's interesting. Physics, for a while now, like over 100 years, they've looked at at the universe and gone, well, you know, when you look at it, you change what you're seeing. Your perception changes the universe. They've been saying that for 100 years. And, and the rest of science is yet to catch up with that. Yeah. Are you talking about Heisenberg's uncertainty principle? I love the uncertainty principle. <laughs> it's my favorite. You know why? Why? Because every day in clinic, I sit with a dramatic amount of uncertainty. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. I do. Yeah. I sit with a huge... And our patients do. And over time, I've learned to become a little more friendly with the uncertainty. And so Heisenberg is like right up there for me with like Zhang Zhongjing and Zhu Danxi and Bob Dylan. There's 
Werner Heisenberg. That's my pantheon. I am so with you. I, I often talk to my students about the idea of walking this knife edge every time you're with a patient and that, you know, it's it's actually dangerous to think that you know what you're doing. But if you don't know what you're doing and you realize you don't know what you're doing, then you're going to be doing your best work because you're really going to be walking that knife edge and how can I best help this person in the best way? Yeah. And what's the best way? There's always that one. Like, what is the best way? If I take away their knee pain, as if I could take away anything, but you know, if their knee pain goes away and now they're overexerting themselves and now their hip is going to go out, did I really help them? I mean, sometimes I, I just would like to go do a different job like power wash back decks where I could easily see that something got done and I don't have to think too much. You know, it's tricky. Yeah. It is tricky. It's challenging. It's a, it's a daily challenge, but it also means you don't get bored. Never. So, so yeah, uncertainty principle, that's, that's a big one for me. I take it very seriously, and it's you know, kind of like an inside joke at the same time. <laughs> yes. You know, cause, I mean, there's something about sitting in clinic. Here's just another thing. I don't know if you've noticed this, but sitting in clinic... Patients are, you know, they want an answer. They always want a diagnosis, like, like, what's wrong with me? And the more I can be comfortable with uncertainty, not that I'm ignoring it, but like comfortable with it, friendly with it, in some ways, I think it invites the patients to be a little bit more friendly with it as well. Oh, yes. Okay. But we're not here to talk about uncertainty. We're here to talk about Aging medicine, and and in particular, you've been teaching for like the past year now over at Ed Neal's Apricot Grove. You've been hanging out in the Apricot Grove. You've been teaching some translation. You've been teaching some some Neijing. I really wanted to take that class, but I could not put one more thing on my plate. I just couldn't. <laughs> well, I'm beginning to wonder why I put one more thing on my plate, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> you all have to answer that for yourself. So I, I thought I would just like swoop in here as, you know, at the end of it and, you know, and, and ask you, because I'm always, you know, curious, anytime you explore something, anytime you teach something, you also learn something. So I'm kind of curious to know what you've learned in the past year from teaching this stuff. Well, I mean, what haven't I learned? I mean, yeah. So I'm almost at the end. I'm literally making the very last bits now. And it's turned out to be um, an extremely long project. Of course, I didn't know what I was going to let myself in for when I started, which is fairly much par for the course for me. That always happens. <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't start, right? If you knew what was coming, it's like, yeah, no. And uh, I think what was unusual about it, for me at least, and maybe generally, is that I started off trying to support Ed's course and I've been I've been on Ed's course and I've supported him and you know I've I've been part of his European arm if you want for well pretty much ever since he did anything in Europe because I'm a fan and he was very um parallel to many things that I was interested in so that was great for me and um so we had a chat and he wanted somebody to do some kind of language support language system. And I said, well, look, I'm really fascinated by the radicals. So how about we set it up that we go through, or I go through, not we, because he hasn't, I have, 
I go through each one of the radicals in turn and look at characters that include that radical. So obviously, you know, when you start with the very with beginning radicals, there's only one or two strokes or three strokes. There were loads of characters that you could choose from. So there had to be some kind of decision making on the field of action. And the field of action, I decided, had to be the Neijing. So most of the texts come from the Neijing. Occasionally, I, well, in fact, probably quite a lot. Um, I go into a little sideline and I discover some other things and maybe I look at some other texts, like I've looked at the Huainanzi and I've looked at sometimes the Lu Shu Chen Zhou or the Dao De Jing, you know, or little bits of, of there. But I would say that maybe 95% of the texts come from the Neijing. So it's been sort of gradually passed through in that way. And I tried to focus on characters that would be useful to acupuncturists because I'm an acupuncturist. Makes sense. Of course it does. And those characters, if you can read into them, they can whisper some secrets. I don't know if they whisper secrets, but they, they like tell you more of the story, don't they? Yeah. It's been amazing. It's been totally amazing. I was thinking, you know, for somebody who'd never studied any Chinese, because Ed reads texts, he does text reading, and so I thought it would be useful to try and sort of expand people's character vocabulary. So I, you know, I, that's how I set out. But I feel supremely unqualified for this job. I have to say that, you know, in a way, I have a whole, a lot of soul searching about sacrilege. Who am I to think that I could do this in the first place? I'm sure there are, I know there are loads of people who are much better translators than me. Yes, but are they acupuncturists? Yeah, that's a very good point. Are they clinicians? Yeah. And do they hold the, the like constellation of passions that you hold? Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely part of it is the fact that I was looking at it from a practical angle. So yes, acupuncture. And then also, um, just I started from a place of enthusiasm and inquiry, which is pretty much everything I do. I start from a place of enthusiasm and inquiry. Why else would I do it? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, how could you go wrong? Actually, you can go wrong in a million different ways. But if you don't have that at the start, how could you ever get started? Yeah, exactly. And the other thing is that I really, honestly, I did this for my own selfish interest <laughs> because I thought, wow, this would be so interesting. What will I find? I have no idea. It could be really fascinating. And it has. It has been the most amazing journey. And because the parameters were so, in a way, sort of tight and loose at the same time. So it was like radicals, text from the Neijing. This allowed this kind of random but surprisingly comprehensive toe dip in the Neijing. So even though I know that it was filtered through my selection, my interest, it was always, you know, oh, I'd, I'd like to read this bit or I'd like to read that bit. So I'm sure that there are bits that I've completely avoided and I tried to sort of open it out a bit. It's been a, a broad brush stroke across the whole of the Neijing. And I have learned so much. So now I honestly feel that I can say, oh, I don't think that thing, that text really exists in the Neijing. I don't think they said that in the Neijing. Or I've never seen that term in the Neijing. Or, wow, that's brilliant. 
that's where that concept came from. I had no idea. So it's been a, a brilliant, brilliant thing to do for me. I hope for everybody else as well. Yeah. Well, you, you've gotten more familiar with the text. As I listen to you talk about it, now I'm really sorry I didn't, I didn't take it because while sometimes I want to take a class because a teacher has an idea and they know what they want to teach and they're going to teach a thing, you're going to get a specific outcome because I'm going to introduce you to a territory. Okay, that's one way to go and I get it and it's helpful. I'm not dismissing it in any way, shape or form, but I'm thinking, <laughs> do you remember the ad that Shackleton put out for his... Uh, adventure into the Antarctic, something like rugged men required, you know, for adventure, uh, chance of success, slim, terrible pay, hard hours, likelihood of death, high, right? It's like, okay, let's, <laughs> let's go, <laughs> right? So an invitation into an inquiry is different than an invitation into, I've got a terrain and, and I want to teach you the terrain. There's a place for both of it, right? I'm not diminishing one or the other. But, you know, when I hear you talk about that kind of invitation, and, and furthermore, what I hear you saying is you kind of went in, in a sense, to, like, curate yeah. the text, curate the characters. Like, what shows up? What, you know, how can I, it's almost like creating a really tasty dinner for a group of people. Like, hmm, what do I want to introduce them to? Yeah, it was. It was really fascinating. Yeah, what do I want to introduce themselves to without knowing what there was. <laughs> so it's like walking into a fantastic supermarket and going, oh, that looks tasty. I'll have some of that. Oh, that looks really interesting. And then see where that went. So that's why I said also that there was some sidelines because quite often, you know, I'd translate a text or I'd pick a text up, I'd translate it. And then I'd go, oh my God, this is what they're talking about. And so then I felt the need to sort of back up a bit and go, okay, well, what has this got to do with? So in the ongoing thinking and discussion about it, I also realized that I could not go down all those little side alleys and I could not give the background or the explanation of all the texts because already this thing was becoming like larger than anything I ever thought it was going to be. And so I quite often I've interspersed with just one page of a picture and a short explanation of what I think the background of that bit of text is so that people have got something to hold on to. And that's been really interesting as well, because I've had, you know, people saying things like, oh, I didn't know that um, Chinese medicine had anything to do with time and space, which, as you can imagine, made me laugh quite a bit, especially given my interest. So, uh, but other things, you know, so there's been lots of little bits and bobs, which has been, it's been really, really fascinating on that level. It's also been really fascinating because it's gone through my lens there have been areas where I've, I've particularly focused on things that are of massive interest to me and that maybe other people weren't interested in at all. Like one of the things that I'm really fascinated by is that thing called the Zongjin, which is the ancestral tendon. Ancestral tendon? Yes, exactly. That's why I'm saying I'm fascinated by it. So that was one of the things. Another thing was to do with the spleen and... Um, and the fact that it relates to the, it doesn't have a season of its own, but it relates to those moments in between the seasons, that kind of thing. Yes. Okay. And I would like to get into that. I'm on, I want to stick a pin in that. But Dongjing, ancestral tendon. Okay. You can't, like, this is like in a movie, right? Like you set up in a movie, right? There's a gun. You know the gun's going to be used later in the movie, right? 
That, that's how it works. Dongjing, like you can't leave us hanging. Yeah, so the dong is the same dong as the as the dong qi, which is in the center of the chest. And it sometimes gets translated as gathering qi because it's in the center of the chest. And sometimes it's called ancestral qi, which is actually what the character means because it's the idea of um, it's like the place where you put your sacrifices on the sacrificial, on the ancestral altar. Yeah, so it's got this very strong connection with ancestors sacrifices, connecting with the ancestors. Turns out that there's also a Zong Mai. I know. A Zong Mai, a, a, a Zong channel, a Zong vessel. Yeah. How weird is that? And it's to do with the ear. It's got something to do with the ear. So what did you find out about these? Is there anything that, I mean, I hear ancestral vessel goes to the ear, like, can use it to treat tinnitus or I mean how do you think about this well with respect to the ancestral tendon it's got something to do with the um with the perineum as of that it's in the location of the perineum so it's like the place that if that bit is works properly and is strong then all the other tendons will also work properly yeah, so it's like the mother of all tendons, I suppose you could call it. Okay, so this sounds like genitals in some way, right? Yeah, but actually I think it's really the perineal. The, like in yoga, they talk about um, three different um, sort of diaphragms, if you want. And there's one that's at the bottom of the throat, there's one that is the diaphragm, and then there's one that is the perineum. So it's kind of like the the control of all the muscular forces in the body. Just like I can only say as a woman, after you've had a baby, sometimes you have a problem with controlling your lower orifices and then you have to do those exercises, which are sometimes called Kegel exercises. So they're about strengthening your perineal, your perineum, basically. And I think that that is what they're talking about, that Zong Jing function. And the Zongjing is massively related to the liver, which also makes sense because the liver relates to the tendons and the sinews and the blood and, you know, all those kind of things that make the tendons work properly. So that's the Zongjing. Pretty fascinating thing, I find. Yes. And when I think about the lower of the three diaphragms, I mean, that makes a certain kind of sense. We often think of the lower portion of the body as having a kind of root chi. Absolutely. Yeah. And we know that it's got some kind of root chi anyway, because, you know, we could, we could get into that whole story about Ming Men and Yuan Chi and all those kind of things. So, you know, all that area is like the, the foundation. And this is the, the foundation of the muscular forces, if you want. Okay. What about the Tong uh, Mai? Yeah, so that one, the Zongjing maybe gets talked about a few times and the Zongmai even less. And it's something about where uh, it says something like all the vessels accumulate in the Zongmai in the area of the left ear. Okay. I know. That's a weird one. Yeah, but you know that, you know, the Neijing is a composite text. And so we've got all these different bits from different historical times that have been accumulated. And so you find these little bits of leftovers from some other way of thinking, presumably. 
Yes. Well, and this for me is one of the things that makes it, I'm going to say challenging to approach these texts in part because it is bits and bobs and it's been woven together from probably countless writers and compiled and revised and, you know, who knows, culture might've changed. So, okay, we're going to take this part out because you can't say that anymore or can't think that way. And we're going to put this part in because that's proper. I mean, anything that's been around that long has probably gone through some of that kind of editing. But the other thing, and this is, this might be a little bit off the topic, but I'm going to ask you anyway, we have such a, um, yeah, I, I will go there. I'm going to call it a fetishization for our history. You know, we look at, we look at the old books like, like the Neijing in the way that a fundamentalist Baptist might look at the Bible. It's like, it's all in there. It's in the book. If you can just get the book, right? We, we kind of, we love our history, but we need to dig the medicine out of the myth in a sense. How do we do that? I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure I can answer that question, Michael, but what I can say is that language has really been useful to me. I think maybe partly because I've always spoken, I was brought up bilingual and so I'm very fascinated by language anyway. So I early discovered that there was something going on with Chinese and, you know, just kind of hooked into it. And one of the things that I've really, really appreciated is, in fact, part of this translation story has been part, has been a column of this kind of ongoing, I don't know, road of mine, which is, you know, trusting that I can, I can translate this stuff and it makes sense to me within my understanding of Chinese medicine. And sometimes when I look at other people's translations of the same text, I do not agree with them. And actually in this project, this translation project, what I've tried to do is I, I've translated texts and then I've gone back and I've looked at Unschuld because, I mean, why wouldn't you look at Unschuld? You know, he's a very good sinologist, but he's not an acupuncturist. So I've looked at some of the stuff that he said, and sometimes I'm like, I'm sorry, I just don't agree with this. And so I've stuck with my own translation. So I'm sorry for all the people who followed me and are confused because I'm really not trying to confuse them. It figures within my understanding. And I think that we have the chance, I think that we, we are lucky enough that we can make our own understanding of this complexity of Chinese medicine in a way that is, it'll never be completely cohesive. I'm okay with that. Do you know what I mean? But you can, you can relate it to concepts, foundational concepts. And by doing that, then you're able to continue learning, understanding. Hello, everyone. Andrew Sturman here. I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in New York City. My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health-supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention from appetizer to dessert. This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory, practice it in your own kitchen, and love doing so. 
See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online, and if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. That makes sense. It, it seems to me that medicine, in a sense, gets rediscovered in each generation. It has to somehow come alive in your own mind and in your own experience. That's how it happens. Now, if you're fortunate enough that you can read Chinese, you've got one less layer of muck to try to get through to get some meaning. It's a little bit more direct. And looking at things, you know, I, I love the approach you took, looking at radicals, because the radicals are really cool. The radicals tell you, I mean, the Chinese language actually makes a lot of sense once you start to look at it. It's not just a bunch of weird scribbles. There's an incredible logic, right? You can look at the radical for water. It's like, okay, this has to do with the dimension of fluids in this world that we live in. You can look at fire, right? Something to do with the influence of fire in the world. Could be all kinds of different ways. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, backtracking, Talking about the layers of obfuscation, I think I was very lucky because um, when I first started studying Chinese medicine, I came across Elizabeth Rochad Lavallee, and so I used to I, I went to her lectures religiously for more than twenty years. And sometimes watching the same, listening to the same topic again, most of it was about trying to understand the the foundation view, the the world view. You know, just trying to sort of immerse myself in that way of thinking more than anything else. So, I, you know, a lot of the stuff I can't even remember, but it put me in this state where that made a lot of sense to me. So that was one thing. And then when I started studying Chinese language uh, more specifically, then I realized this business about the radicals and the phonetics. And really part of my approach to this translation project was about the idea of um, showing people that Chinese was actually more logical than they thought. Because, you know, people go, oh, my God, how could you ever, you know, learn that, understand that? Right. It's Chinese impossible. Yeah, but actually that's not true because when you get a handle on the radicals, then you can start to dissect the character much better and you can really get an idea of what's going on. And then you can compare, you can do sort of comparative stuff. So what would happen with that phonetic if I change the radical? How is that going to make it different? Do you see what I mean? So it gives you much more of the many layered flavors of a character, which is the thing that fascinates me most. And Chinese medicine is nothing if not multi-layered. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you're looking for that straight one-to-one -one correspondence, you're not going to get that far. You can do something, but... Learning to think in that multivalent way, we're kind of back to uncertainty a little bit here, aren't we? Definitely. It permeates the language. Yeah. Um, somebody said to me that um, uh, they wanted to study Chinese at university. And, uh, and I said, oh, that's great. You know, and they said, do you know how they select people, to who students who want to learn Chinese at university in the UK? And I said, no, I've got no idea. And they said, if they're mathematical, mathematically minded, they're more likely to be selected. 
because mathematicians have more of this understanding of various possibilities, various layers, various ways of approaching a topic. Because in maths, if you want to solve an equation or solve a problem, you can do it in many different ways. And a lot of the time, as you go further on in your studies, it's not to do with there's the right way. It's to do with, wow, that was a really good way of doing it. Very unusual that we've never seen before. See, this is why I think they would have selected artists. Yeah, that would also be a totally good reason, you know. And, and of course, you know, Chinese characters are one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And, and I am not a calligrapher and that's not my thing. Just like my pronunciation is rubbish. I'm just totally fascinated by the way that these characters are made up and the layers of meaning that you get in them and how that relates to what we do when we're doing Chinese medicine. Can you give us an example? <laughs> Share one of your favorite characters with us. Oh, no, that's so hard, isn't it? I mean, one of my favorite characters, but this has been one of my favorite characters for years now, is the Ling, the Ling of the Ling Shu. The Ling of the Ling Shu. Yeah, because it gets translated as spiritual, you know, the spiritual pivot and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Ling Hoda Ling. Yeah, but it's got rain on the top. It's got three little squares that look like mouths, but actually they're supposed to be raindrops. And then underneath, there's the character for the Wu, which is supposed to be shamans or shamanesses. So there's the idea of the shamans or shamanesses who are dancing to make the rain come. And I just love that. I just think that's the, you know, one of the best descriptions that you could possibly ever have of a character. You know, it's so cool. It's fun to write it too. Yeah, exactly. It's There are certain characters, they really flow when you write them. Yeah. Have you got a favorite character? Yes, I do. I try not to play favorites. It's like, you know, when you got cats, you don't want to have a favorite, but you always do. Yeah. Ting. Ah, very nice. Ting, listen. It's my absolute favorite. It's made up of a bunch of stuff, but the, but the primary are the ear, the eyes, and the heart. Yeah. There's also this little kind of cross thing at the top that I look at is 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 the like Shentian Hotian moment of connection, which is the now. And there's another little on the lower left hand side, a Wang sovereign. Yeah. So it's something about the sovereign part of ourselves in this moment using our eyes and ears and heart. And that is how you listen. Yeah. And the sage character has also got the ear and the mouth, hasn't it? Yes. Yes. I think those, those kind of things are very interesting. But yeah, once you get into sort of dissecting, it makes so much sense. Or the, or the other one, which is one that I often have to talk about, is the E. The one that gets translated as intention, which really bugs me. What, now, now, what bugs you about that? Let it loose. Because we, we have, in fact, there's the E and the J. Both of those I've got problems with because, you know, the moment you start talking about J and then people say, oh, willpower. But in the West, you know, willpower is like, well, I'm going to do this. Stuff you. I don't care what you think. And that, that isn't what it means at all. It's nothing to do with that. It's to do with being rooted in your, in your destiny, in your Ming men, it's like your, instead of like the, the heaven, it's your heavenly mandate, but in your body. That's what Ming men is, really. It's the gate 
of your heavenly mandate, if you want. So it's about getting rooted in that. And because of that, you you know where, you know, what your roots are, what your foundations are. And that gives you the ability to grow in the correct fashion, yeah, to exert your will in the correct fashion. And I think it's maybe Suen 4 or Suen 5, where it, it's the the passage that talks about um, the seasons and it says, you know, in springtime, you release your hair and take big steps in the courtyard and all that kind of stuff. And you allow your will to work in this particular way because you're aligning your will to the the frequency of the season, if you want, something like that. So that's the je. And then there's the e. Hang on, before you get to the e, you use the term rooted in destiny. So that, you know, sometimes you hear something and it's like, wog, 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 like, like, okay, listen up. Rooted in destiny. And like you were just saying, when you have that deep sense, who you are, what you're here for, what this life is about, where you're headed. Yeah, as things come along, it's so much easier to say, oh, yes, that's a piece that will help, or nope, yep, thanks, but that's not anything to do with me. Which brings me to another really interesting two characters, Yuan Fun, often translated as fate, but it's not quite right because it's more like opportunity meets willingness. And so how do you know how to parse that? Well, with a strong juror, you can recognize those moments of your end fun. It's not just fate. It's, it's something coming along that is in alignment. And when you know, when you're aligned with your juror, then you can use your E to connect with your Shen. Because the E is the sound of the heart. So you use that to say, okay, so what is the sound of my heart? And of course, the heart is the emperor, so it tells me what I need to do. So how does sound of the heart end up being intention, do you suppose? Yeah, that, I mean, that's my problem. Again, I, th- I think it's to do with our Western interpretation of the word. And actually, fundamentally, this is the problem for me with with the Chinese language generally and the transliter- the translations that we've had. Because you know, my my first experience of Chinese medicine or reading about Chinese medicine was from books that had been translated into French, probably by Jesuits, and then from French into English, or into some other, you know, language and then, you know, was then into English and so, or Italian or French or whatever. And so each one of them chose the word that they thought was the best translation. And, and so you've got these kind of different words like intention or meaning or thought or, you know, and there's a whole bag of words for this E thing. Well, this E thing, it's got yin, the tone at the top of the five tones, and it's got the heart at the bottom. I mean, how much clearer can you get? So here we are with looking at how the characters made up. Yeah. Sound, heart. What's the E? Sound of the heart. Yeah. And, and it's not even the sound, it's the tone. And the tone, because there are five tones. Turns out that there's this whole thing about 
five tones and 12 pitch pipes and, you know, all this business, which has been driving me crazy. Stems and branches. Yeah. But the tones, they're to do with what happens in the heavens. They're to do with like the, the, the planetary movements. The planets have a tone. Yeah. So the water planet has a particular water tone, if you see what I mean. So it's some kind of vibration, some kind of frequency, something like that. Yeah. And so we're looking at the tone of the heart, which is our tone, because my Shen is the universal Shen. It's been, it's, it's been transported into my body. So it has that particular frequency and everything is going to be presented to my heart so that I know that it's the right thing for my body. Because if it isn't, I don't want it. Yes. And it doesn't want you either. Exactly. Yeah. Deborah, I have had a handful of times in my life, and I feel fortunate that it's, I mean, it'd be great if it happened more often, maybe, maybe not, I don't know. But I know a handful of times in my life, I've had these moments, maybe you've had them too, you hear something, someone says something, and they suggest something, or you catch a snippet of a conversation that you're, you don't even realize you're eavesdropping on, but you hear something and you go, <gasps> that's right. And now your life is completely different because you're following what you just heard. Yeah. That's the story of me and acupuncture. <laughs> story of me and learning Chinese. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's the E. I want to circle back because we were talking about spleen earlier. And spleen is the, well, it's the season that doesn't have a season. It's a season in the middle. It's a... I don't know. What is it? Uh, you can look at the Uxing and it, you know, goes in between fire and metal, or you can look at the Uxing and it goes in the middle of everything. Yeah. So I've been thinking about this quite a lot because you know that the, that the earth, the spleen, you know, it's this idea about, yeah, you can put it between fire and metal that came a little bit later on. And then before then you also have this idea of coming in between each of the phases. And I was also thinking about, um, this thing where I saw um, in the Shuowen Jiezi, the you know the first Chinese dictionary—it's not really a dictionary, but something like that—and it says that the heart was an earth phase. That's interesting. Yeah. So I was wondering whether actually we are thinking two D when we should be thinking three D, and when you think three D, then you've got the square of north, south, east, west, or summer, winter, spring, autumn, you know, all that kind of stuff, whether you want it in time or in space, it doesn't really matter. And then it's a pyramid. And then that's where the top of the pyramid is where the earth is. Because the only way that the earth can make contact with all these different directions, seasons, all that kind of stuff is by being 3D. Yeah. So like the emperor is in contact with anything, everything, by being above. You know, they always talk about above. Do you see what I mean? So I'm kind of wondering about that. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it as a three-dimensional where the center actually is, you, you pull it up. Yeah. Now you got that four-sided pyramid. Huh. Yeah. It's just a thought. And it connects to everything. Yeah. Yeah, because then it makes much more sense because then you can see that it's the center. It is the center. But it's also the center that can connect with everything in every direction. 
in every way it's connected. And so, you know, then that would also make sense when you talk about the heart being the, you know, the sovereign, the ruler, you know, the, the whatever. And that's also, it's the one that is above. It's so nice to have these pat models in mind because then I feel like I know what I'm talking about and I can make sense of things. And then we have a conversation like this and it, it, it kind of messes with my mental models, <laughs> which is actually kind of delightful. Again, back to that uncertainty piece, like, oh, add the dimension piece in there. Oh, huh. I wonder how that looks when I start thinking that way. Mm. Yeah, because also like when you talk about the, the wu shen, the five spiritual aspects, shen is one of those wu shen, if you see what I mean. And that's kind of weird in itself. It's kind of one, but it's also one of five. So are we talking about different dimensional levels? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. When I think about Shen, it's like big spirit or little spirit, personal conscious, collective unconscious. Yeah, or Shen with relation to Shen and Jing, like heaven and earth, yin yang. Do you see what I mean? And then you're on a different level. Or Shen as in relation to the five phases. Exactly. I'm getting a flavor for it. So there's some kind of idea of sort of different levels, yeah? Mm-hmm. Anyway, that was the thought I had about the spleen and the earth and the heart. Those five spirits, again, th this comes down to us through a different language, a different culture, through lots and lots of time. And... It's so tricky because I find my mind wanting to put the sense of the world I already have into that model. I want to, I want to like squeeze them together and see if they'll tab A will go into slot B, and, and then I'll have a coherent sense of the world. And then there's other days where I'm a little more comfortable again with uncertainty, and I can look at it and go, "What is this? I don't really get it, but take it as an inquiry, take it as an investigation." see what shows up. I mean, I definitely don't think about the Wu Shen being the set of five in the same way as Wu Xing. I think of them as two different sets. You know, one is the Shen with the Hun and the Po, and the other one is the Shen, the Yi, and the Zhe. Mm-hmm. So they're two different things, if you want. Tell me more about that. Well, the Shen with the Hun and the Po is, is like our daily life. This is it's like the left and the right-hand man of the Shen. So the left-hand man is the Hun, or the three Hun, and the right-hand man, person, human, not person, <laughs> is the seven Po. Yeah, so, you know, ones, they're, they're perfectly balanced. It's east and west. It's sunrise and sunset. It's liver and lungs. Yeah, it's all that kind of stuff. It's to do with our, the Shen manifested in those two aspects, basically, yeah? It's the way that we live. That's why on the Ma Wangdui banner, they've got, you know, there's the woman with the three hun behind her, and then underneath there's all that stuff, which is underground stuff about how the po goes into the ground and all that kind of thing. So, you know, those kind of things, yeah? It's, it's the scales, if you want. Could you say it's the physiology? Not really. No, don't like that. Don't like that word. Oh, all right, fine. That's too much like hard work. 
<laughs> I like physiology. It's interesting. It's the scientific part of me. It wants to categorize things. But yeah, you know, you when we talk about Hun and Po, we have to do them in comparison. It's a comparative thing, isn't it? And they both come out of the Shen. Yeah, so you've got the Shen, and then you've got the the more ethereal manifestation of the Shen, which is the Hun, and then you've got the more physical manifestation of the Jing. So so this is this is where I'm thinking physiology with this kind of spirit thing entangled within it. Yeah. That's why, you know, the, the paw goes with the bones and goes into the ground and all that kind of stuff. All right. Now we bring in the shen, the e, and the zhi. Yeah. So that's completely vertical axis material. Like before, when I was talking about the, the, the hun and the paw, I was talking about the horizontal axis, um, sunrise, sunset, east, west, daily living, wake up, go to bed, breathing, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Dreaming, whatever. Now. Shen Yi Zhe, that's vertical axis material. That is heaven, earth, and man, heaven, man, earth, whichever one you want to look at. That's a totally different ballgame. That's to do with we're made by a joining of Shen and Jing, and then uh, that axis remains in our body for the rest of our lives. And then it becomes the, you know, like Ming Men, our Tian Ming, our heavenly mandate. Yeah. And then our, our heart which is not really ours anyway. It comes from heaven. So that's this is all, it's stuff. Wait a minute. Heart is not really ours. It comes from heaven? Well, our shen is not really ours. We borrow it. Yeah, we borrow it. Definitely. It's a, there's a, you know, it's a universal thing. It comes into the body. It doesn't, it's not there all the time. It comes into the body around about three months of pregnancy. It's called the quickening, isn't it? Well, I'm also just thinking of the midline, that very first cell division. Absolutely. Yeah. And then when you look at the embryonic development, you have that, you know, what, what we would call the universal spark. And then it becomes that the, the trilaminar disc. And the trilaminar disc is like heart on one end, Ming Men on the other. And then it's got three layers, endo, ecto, and meso, endo, meso, and ecto. Yeah. So it's that kind of thing. That is all to do with sort of fundamental vertical axis material, level of three. When you say horizontal axis and vertical axis, what else are we talking about here? Hmm. Is one time and one space? Is one, I mean, just, I, I mean, I don't know. I'm asking the question. I Yeah, it's maybe pre-heaven and post-heaven, pre-birth and post-birth, like um, vertical axis very much to do with our creation and horizontal axis very much to do with our ability to live in the created world. Something like that, maybe. Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine, even as they are feeling more positive about acupuncture. They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP certified facilities, and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. 
For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free dropship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. That sounds worth investigating from that perspective. Yeah. Food. So that season in between, I want to come back to that for just a second. Because um, I feel like I've only recently cottoned on to that whole idea of at the end of each cycle, there's that 18 days where now it's the earth phase again. Earth in the middle. Of course, I'm, I was thinking about that as a uh, two-dimensional <laughs> laid out on a piece of paper kind of cycle. Now I'm thinking about it in dimension. Like things go up, things go down. I'm not even sure how to think about it other than you've added this element of dimension to how the earth might be in the middle. Or a shuttling back to the central pole in some way. So would it make it a particularly advantageous time to do certain things or engage in particular activities or well it's the way of transforming from one season to the next so you're using it to because that's what earth does it transforms and transports so what you're doing is you're using it to transform the chi of one season into the chi of the next so it's always at the end of every season so we've just we've literally just come into summer now and so just before then, we had that moment where we were getting ready for springtime or we were getting ready for summertime. Actually, it's summertime, not spring here. But do, do you know what I mean? So this is the moment where we get a just over two weeks when it's that transition where we're not really in spring anymore, but we haven't reached summer yet. And so we can digest the last bit of springtime. So as to create the form, the appearance, the shape of summer. Because Earth is also to do with form, shape, physical form, if you want. When I hear that kind of thing, it suggests to me that there are four moments in the year, 18 days each. Things are particularly fluid-like. You're changing from one thing to another. It might be advantageous moments for change, maybe. I don't know. I'm not a I'm not a geomancer of any kind, but I wonder about that. I'm pretty sure they are. Just like um, there are good times and bad times to start new things with relation to the moon. For instance, you don't want to start something at full moon. You know, you want to start something at new moon. So it's a similar sort of idea that we're reaching the beginning of something, and so we we prepare ourselves. We prepare the ground so that we can move on to the next thing. That, that's an evocative image, preparing the ground to move on to the next thing. Earth phase, I mean, yeah, that makes a lot of intuitive sense to me. 
And here we are playing with language, aren't we? Absolutely. And I always joke about the fact that I'm a very slow digester. So it takes me a long time to sort of digest something. But once I've digested it, then I've got it and I can move forward. So I need those spaces. I found that recently in, um, well, I've been thinking about this quite a lot recently because I'm juggling a lot of stuff. I'm still doing the PhD and everything. And so I found that because I don't have a lot of time, what I need to do is I need to prime myself the night before. So I read a little bit of stuff about what I'm going to be doing the next day. And then that gets me already into it. Otherwise, I haven't prepared the ground and I just, you know, waste the morning. And actually, I haven't got a lot of time. So wasting the morning is quite a lot of waste. Yes. Well, and you impress me as someone who's a good starter. You know, you're, you're inquisitive, like starting things. It's not hard to come up with an idea of something that might be interesting. But that's different than taking something forward in a step-by-step methodic way. Yeah. I'm woody, but I'm not that woody. I'm more, um, I'm definitely a finisher. Would you say you're strong at finishing or is that more of a challenge for you? I think it's hard for everybody. Mm, I don't know. I've, I've met some people, they're pretty damn methodical and they set out their steps to do and they go do their steps. I've, I've met those kind of people. I mean... There aren't many things that I don't finish, so I guess I must be pretty good at finishing, but I don't find it easy. My experience is anything worthwhile usually takes a lot of time, experimentation, uh, finding a whole lot about what doesn't work as well as what does. I love your idea of priming yourself for the next day by like doing a little reading or a little mental preparation before you go to sleep. It's like, this is where I'm going to pick it up tomorrow. I'm putting a bookmark in my life at the moment. I'm going to do this. Yeah, also because um, I learned a long time ago that my, my brain processes things quite a lot at night when I'm sleeping. So, you know, I also like to give it food. Nourish the earth. Yeah. There you go. All right. So you are coming up to the end of this class. What would you say... One of the big takeaways has been for you. What's been one of the most surprising things to come out of this inquiry? Because you went into it with inquiry. What else has come out of it that's notable for you? Well, when I started, I didn't really have a sort of anything I wanted to prove. But because I've also been doing the PhD at the same time, and I'm kind of moving forward that with that, then... Um, it's definitely opened my eyes to uh, areas that are interesting to me with respect to the PhD that are, they seem to be sort of imbued throughout the whole of the Neijing. And that's to do with, yeah, kind of cosmological concepts and divinatory backgrounds and things like that, which people don't really notice because they don't look for them, I suppose. Because through looking for specific terms, specific characters, then I can also see, oh, look, it comes up this many times. Ah, well, if it comes up this many times, perhaps, you know, this is part of a thread of thought, something like that. And it's, it's a very different thing to, okay, I'm going to read about, I'm going to read Suen 4 or I'm going to read Suen 5 or whatever, because this way you can, you can follow um, the occurrence and how many of a certain character you see. And that's been a really interesting, yeah, interesting journey. So what I think I hear you saying is it's helpful to have an inquiry that you're bringing to the reading. 
it's definitely a different way of approaching the text, which has been incredibly fruitful for me. I really feel that I I know a lot more about what different chapters of the Suen are. Like I've noticed that some chapters come back, you know, over and over. I'm like, oh, this one turns out I really like this one. I've seen too many bits of this one. And then I'm also managing to link across because, you know, we talked about the fact that this that the Neijing has got it's got so many different layers, historical layers that, you know, some chapters, they seem really bitty, but you can kind of draw bits from, OK, so there's a bit from this chapter and there's a bit from this chapter and there's a bit from this chapter. And they're actually talking about the same subject matter. So that's really interesting. From different angles? No, usually it's it's actually the story. It's like, a, you know, you kind of like, well, why are they talking about this? Oh, look, now they've defined it here. Now they're talking about it there. And now they're telling us how to use it there. Something like that. Can you give me an example? Um, well, I can give you an example about one of the things that interests me, which is Taiguo uh, Buji, which is about... Um, uh, going too far or not going far enough, and they're talking about sort of seasons. So, you know, something that comes too early or something that comes too late, and then what effects it has. And they talk about it in the Stems and Branches chapters. But, you know, actually, they talk about it in um, Suen 9. They talk about it in Suen 26, I'm going to say, but it might be 25. Uh, they talk about it. Do you see what I mean? There's certain places. So you you discover like first it defines it there, then later on it tells you a little bit more about it. And then you get to the stems and branches chapters and then it says, okay, now we're going to tell you, you know, what happens when it's like this and like this in terms of climate and in terms of health and illness and so on. Something like that, maybe. Things could come too soon, that causes a certain problem. Things could come too late, that causes a different kind of problem. Yeah. I remember you talking about this when we were talking stems and branches some time ago, there's a, there's a whole way that that's built into, I'm going to call it the wobble of the universe. Yeah. And another thing that's been really fascinating that I've also tried to angle my, my translations a little bit towards is about pairings, not only yin yang, but also uh, shun, ni, or, you know, taigor, buji, or shusha, or, you know, all those different things where, you know, they always talk about one and then the other, one and then the other. So I think that's also this whole kind of duality situation. I think that's absolutely fascinating. Well, and it's so fundamental to practicing medicine because we're constantly asking the question, what am I looking at? What is this? Is it excess or is it deficient? Is there too much or is there not enough? Yeah. I mean, whenever I get lost in clinic, that's always the first thing I go to. So too much or not enough? Like, what am I actually looking at? Because things can masquerade very easily, or I can talk myself into a story of what I think it is because I'm only looking at a piece of it. Yeah. And actually, you know, that's another thing that I end up sort of complaining about a lot, which is that we can get so stuck in these complications and these layers and all these different things that is you can't see the wood for the trees. So what you need to do is always go back to basics. So, you know, I'm always going back to, okay, is it on the left or is it on the right? Is it blood? Is it chi? Is it too much? Is it too little? 
you know, those kind of questions, they seem trivial, but they're actually the most essential questions so far as I'm concerned. I would not disagree. Look, it's so simple. It's this or it's that. <laughs> simple, simple, not simple, simple. <laughs> All right. Wow. Um, we could probably gab on this for another few hours, but it's about time to start to wind wind this conversation down. I've got a new way of winding down. Oh, great. How does it work? We're going to do something a little different. You know, like if you go to a wine tasting, you, you need to refresh your palate sometimes. We're going to go out with a lightning round. We're going to do a couple of very quick answer questions off the cuff. Could be completely different. Not, might not even talk about medicine. You up for it? Go on then. It'll be fun. Deborah Wolf, what are you reading right now? I am reading a very obscure text about the stems and branches. Uh, it's it's a, um, a commentator. You would. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of reading, what's your favorite book of fiction? It's been a very long time since I've allowed myself to read fiction because this Chinese medicine thing and Chinese has taken over my life seriously very, very much. But I've been thinking about this recently because my son's been looking for things to read. So I'd like to say, what about The Trial by Kafka? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> All right. You keep things on the light side. I found myself shouting to an Italian bureaucrat um, after my dad died a few years ago. And Italian bureaucracy is a complete and utter nightmare. And my dad is an English citizen who lived in Italy for 30 years. And uh, so I was talking to this woman in the council and she said, well, you need to give me this piece of paper. And I said, have you ever read the trial? Because I feel like I'm in it. <laughs> She's a bureaucrat. Had she read it? No, of course she hadn't. Or, or maybe she read it so she could know how to be a bureaucrat. I don't know. All right. What's your favorite snack? Oh, uh, nori. I love nori. You're, you're, you're a seaweed girl. I love it. Excellent. What is one thing that most people believe is true that you think is rubbish? That humans are important. <laughs> Aren't these lightning rounds fun? All right. One more. The most heartfelt thing that you have learned from practicing medicine. That I'm in constant service. Well, my friend, Deborah Wolf. Always a delight to hang out with you. Thank you, Michael. It's been great. I always appreciate Deborah's spirited sense of inquiry, be it noodling through acupuncture's source code of the stems and branches or untangling the meaning and nuance of Chinese characters. Spending time in conversation with Deborah reminds me that potent questions will take us a lot further than pat answers. And while it is satisfying to the mind to have solid answers, the heart shen, it seems to be more enlivened with not easily answered questions. Engaging the spirit of inquiry, we never know where that might lead. And that is worth cultivating because in our clinical work, we never know where the path might lead. And having a sense of curiosity, it's a helpful way to engage with our patients. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, 
share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. 